Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Robots Radio presents... In 1999, director Brad Bird gave the world a Cold War commentary paired with a giant robot. In 2020, we kick off spring with a bottom-shelf Canadian whiskey. The film is The Iron Giant. The whiskey is Canadian Mist. And we'll review them both. This is... The The Film Film and Whiskey Podcast. Podcast. Welcome to the Film and Whiskey Podcast, where each week we review a classic movie and a glass of whiskey. I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And this week we're looking at the 1999 animated classic, The Iron Giant. And we are joined today in studio by one of our all-time favorite people and frequent guest host, Jordan McCain. Jordan, how you doing today, man? I'm doing good. How's it going, Film and Whiskey Nation? You guys need a term for your fans. What do you call? Is that what you call that is, them? That is what we call them. There is a whole. I was thinking. There's a whole nation of us. We are we are pursuing becoming a sovereign entity. I was thinking like a noun of like what you call the individuals, like foo woos, or something <laughs> really terrible. When you do your live podcast someday, right, exactly. in front of a huge crowd, you're like, "What up, foo woos?" All right. Well, we've now learned that we can just discard anything Jordan says over the course of this podcast, so cool. <laughs> Foo-woos. Oh, Bob, I am on board for this. <laughs> of course you are. All right, so today we're checking out The Iron Giant. This is a movie that just celebrated its 20th anniversary, and Brad, if I'm not mistaken, this is like the third, fourth, fifth movie we've done from 1999. What a fantastic year for movies it was. Yeah, it really got dragged down by this film. Oh, Brad, are you kidding me, Brad? I mean, no, I, I'm I'm slightly kidding. This is a fine, decent piece of animation. I really enjoy certain parts of it. But overall, you know, it's it's just kind of another animated film. Oh my gosh, dude. Okay. Well, I hope Jordan likes this movie because I'm I'm ready to go hard on this one. I love the Iron Giant. I think this movie is phenomenal. I think that it is an underrated cartoon classic. And I will fight you on this, Brad. Yeah, I would have to say I also agree with you, Bob, that I I have fond memories of this movie as a kid. It was fun to look back at it as an adult. I've seen it quite a few times and see how poorly it did in the box office, which made me laugh. But the themes that have continued with the film have really stuck with me. And it seemed like a really, uh, really good contemporary critique of our modern times being set in the Cold War. I love Cold War movies. I love animated movies. I think Brad Bird. So smart. Great guy. (laughs) He's a good guy. Thanks, Brad. All right. So before we get into talking about this movie, uh, I have to ask, Brad, was this the first time you've seen The Iron Giant? Yeah. Amazingly enough, having grown up in the 90s, like 99, I was nine years old. I, I should have seen this movie, but I've never seen it even to this day. I just haven't watched it. So this is I'm actually in the same spot you are, Brad, because this movie, like Jordan said, it came out. It did not do great at the box office. It was considered a flop. Uh, Warner Animation was not really a huge animation studio. And and certainly having this movie bomb at the box office did not help. But then almost immediately after it flopped at the box office, it started getting kind of a cult following. Critics were saying that it was a movie that people had kind of missed the bandwagon on, that they should check it out again. I think Cartoon Network bought the rights to show this on TV, and once they got the rights to it, they showed it all the time. And I remember seeing it for the first time on Cartoon Network, and so it had a ton of commercial breaks. But every time they came back from commercial break, there was an announcer that said, we now return to the animated classic, The Iron Giant. And I was like, oh, an animated classic? And... I'll tell you what, like watching it as a 10, 12 year old, this movie just absolutely captivated me because I think that it portrayed childhood 
in a different way than what I was seeing in Disney movies. It's a it's a much more sort of adult movie in terms of its themes. It deals with life and death. It deals with the things that kids were going through in the Cold War. You know, I think they have a really sort of clever way of working in nuclear holocaust into like the plot of this movie. But I was just captivated by it. And it sounds like Jordan was too. And Brad, seeing this movie now at almost 30 years old, it seems like this movie just did not capture your imagination the way it did with us. Yeah, see, here's the thing, Bob. There's certain things about this movie that I really enjoyed. Like at the start of the movie, when they show the video of the kid sitting at the desk and, you know, they're like, oh, if a nuclear bomb hits, hide (laughs) under your desk with your hands over your head. And like they literally have a video of the entire world around them as this giant crater. And they're still safe smiling under their desk. <laughs> right, like right. I don't remember if they do it or not, but the, the kid's pretty much like giving a thumbs up like, hey, I'm good to go. Nuclear fallout can't hurt me. So like there's certain parts of this movie that I genuinely enjoy, that that are funny, that are whimsical, that are interesting. Um, I thought the animation style was really beautiful. It honestly was reminiscent of like Beauty and the Beast for me. Mm-hmm. You know, there's times where my wife and I were watching this and she goes, oh, I feel like uh, when she was looking at Jen- Jennifer Aniston's character, she's like, I feel like I'm looking at Belle yeah. from Beauty and the Beast. Yeah. So, like, I-, I think the animation style was beautiful. I-, I think the voice acting was really great. I thought Eli Marienthal killed it as Hogarth Hughes. I mean, he just did a spectacular job. I thought Harry Connick Jr. was decent. Uh, he was a little bit over the top, but, like, you know, there's there are things that I like about this movie. Well, that's good news. And before we get into Brad Explains, which is our favorite segment on the show, I do want to say that I, I'm with you on some of this, Brad. I think that you can see the influences, the, the movies that influenced this movie all over the place. And Beauty and the Beast was the first one I wrote down because you get that opening with the guy kind of shipwrecking into the Iron Giant. And then you get a fade out and it fades back in on this, you know, sunny, pleasant New England town. And even the music cues are like, you think they're going to go into the opening song from Beauty and the Beast. It was like very shamelessly ripping off Beauty and the Beast in those early moments. But I think, you know, this movie owes such a debt to E.T. I mean, obviously, it's an alien that comes down. A boy, you know, takes care of him. The government wants to take it away. It's it's essentially E.T. set during the Cold War. Yeah, literally Haley, like a quarter of the way into the movie, she goes, oh, we're just watching E.T. again, aren't we? Yeah, and I think that's <laughs> that's probably the biggest criticism of the movie that I can give is that the plot is familiar. And, I mean, you can see influences at the end of the film. I saw a lot of King Kong, you know, with people trying to shoot down this thing that they saw as a giant monster. There's a scene that reminds me of Treasure of the Sierra Madre, where the government agent and the boy are having like a stare down of who's going to fall asleep first. There's a lot of War of the Worlds, the, the the old War of the Worlds from the 50s when the Iron Giant kind of turns into this killing machine for a little bit. And so you can definitely see the influences on Brad Bird as he makes this film. And I think we're going to get into talking about some of that. But before we do, it's time for our favorite segment, which is called Brad Explains. Now, if you're new to the podcast, what this segment is, is Brad breaks down the plot of a movie that in many instances he's seeing for the first time. And we're lucky enough to get him catching this movie for the first time. So, Brad, can you explain to us the plot of the film The Iron Giant? Man, I don't know if I'm up to it, Bob. That's a that's a hearty task. <laughs> we'll just copy and paste your breakdown from E.T. and we'll be good. Oh, All right, well, then let's move on. (laughs) So the movie The Iron Giant is about a young boy named Hogarth Hughes. Uh, His mother is a waitress at a local diner. Um, Dad's not in the picture, a la Pixar. He is just kind of living his life. I I think that the movie is set in like the late 50s to the early 60s. Um, He's this cute kid who enjoys being out in the woods in their New England town. And eventually he is out and about and he finds this iron giant that has crashed through the sky from unknown reaches of outer space. It has come ashore and it eats metal and it attempts to eat a giant power converter station and it electrocutes the heck out of him and uh, Hogarth turns off the power station by magically finding the giant on-off switch, turning everything off and saving the Iron Giant. And from there, a friendship is formed. He begins to hang out with the Iron Giant. He eventually finds a way to feed him at a local scrapyard. 
And so the movie is about how he's kind of trying to keep him hidden so that the government and the town doesn't find out about him. But of course, this fails. And at some point, the government comes to destroy the Iron Giant. Um, it's in the middle of the Cold War. It's extremely fearful of enemy technology coming to destroy their nation. And so they move to attack it. And lo and behold, their worst fears come true. The Iron Giant is a technological terror. You know, he is destroying the town. He's acting in aggression towards the military. And it, it takes a heroic sacrifice of Hogarth to stand in front of the guns. And he eventually stops the Iron Giant. But the military has launched a nuclear missile to destroy the Iron Giant. And the Iron Giant takes off into the sky, flies into space, and sacrifices himself in order to save the New England town and the young boy that he cares for, Hogarth. And that is the Iron Giant. So, Brad, uh, I, I know that you probably want to get into talking about what it is that you didn't like about this movie, but I think we should focus the first half of our conversation on things that we did like. You've already kind of mentioned that you really, really enjoyed Eli Marienthal as Hogarth Hughes. I think, if I'm not mistaken, uh, he was one of my honorable mentions in our top five voice actor performance episode. I I think that he is just phenomenal. And there's something about that sort of like gravelly voice he has even as a kid where he does the disinterested thing very well but he also plays the emotion very well when he you know at the end of the film when the iron giant's going to sacrifice himself and he says i love you and there's this, just this ache in his voice that you don't get with a lot of child actors i really thought he knocked it out of the park yeah i totally agree bob he honestly reminded me of like if if Nemo from Finding Nemo was like 13 years old, you would have Eli Marienthal. Like he does such an impressive job. He has such a sweetness to his voice. He's so kind and caring. And I just feel like he really gets the part of Hogarth, this this kind of free-spirited, excited youth that just can't wait to see what the world has to offer. And lo and behold, the world has to offer him a Iron Giant. And and he just has so much enthusiasm and sincerity in his performance. I really, truly enjoyed him. No, I thought he did a really good job as well. I think as we've seen the evolution of child actors and even child voice actors and adults playing children or whatever, it, I, I'm genuinely surprised when you find a child who seems to just do a really, really good job in some of these scenarios because... It can seem a little strange or stale or awkward when you have them. And I've seen some movies recently that reminded me of that. But he just kills it. Jordan, I'm curious, as someone who likes this movie a lot, who else in the cast do you really appreciate their voice acting performance? Yeah. Uh, one of my favorite hobbies when I watch films is to go into the IMDb trivia and see who almost played a lot of these roles. And I love Christopher McDonald as Kent Mansley. He, yeah. uh, throughout his career, has been like the expert of very small roles. Uh, I've loved him as I forgot that he was Shooter McGavin and Happy Gilmore, which is just such a funny role to think about it. But, you know, the people who almost were Kent Mansley was like uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger, for one, <laughs> and uh, Burt Reynolds for another, which would have really changed, I think, the tone of the film. But for whatever reason, this small time kind of actor guy really killed it portraying uh, an agent, a government agent who's just really trying to prove himself and is really desperate all the time <laughs> to do a good job. Uh, it just is very convincing. Yeah, I totally agree. And, and I was going to bring him up if you weren't, because I think aside from Eli Marienthal, he was my favorite performance in the movie. He comes in as this guy that is just so clearly larger than life. And we use this term all the time on the podcast, but chewing scenery left and right. But he has such a good bad guy voice. And, you know, immediately I'm like, I recognize that voice from somewhere. So I did exactly what you did, went on IMDb, and I'm like, oh, it's the Happy Gilmore guy. And I just like <laughs> from that point on, I was just like enthralled by his performance. I thought it was so, so good. But I'm wondering, Brad, you kind of talked about Harry Connick Jr. a little bit. I'm wondering what you thought of Jennifer Aniston in this movie. Because I think a lot of her character is just kind of wandering around going, Hogarth, Hogarth, where are you? <laughs> and to be honest, like, I can't tell if I just didn't care for the character, if it was just an underdeveloped character, 
or if I just don't really think that Jennifer Aniston is that good of a voice actor. Because even in those early scenes with Hogarth's mom, she's kind of, I don't know, it seems like she's just kind of dialing it in a little bit with her performance, and you don't really get the vibe of, like, I am an overworked, exhausted mother from her performance. I think the script keeps telling us that, but she kind of just sounds like Rachel from Friends walking into the room and being like, oh, Hogarth, I'm really tired. And, and I, I just it didn't work for me. I don't know. What did you guys think of her performance? Well, see, my struggle with Jennifer Aniston, and I think this isn't a new commentary, is that she is always Rachel from Friends, that she always yeah. kind of just has that kind of sickly sweet persona of of Jennifer Aniston. I, I don't know. The, that's the problem with her. But it's also the charm of her. And honestly, I agree with you that her character was underdeveloped and was it, it just seemed like she would played a very minimalistic role in this movie. But I actually really like Jennifer Aniston as a voice actor. She has such a sweetness to her voice that when you don't have to see her physically acting, the voice really comes through strongly. And I actually really enjoy her. For me, it was interesting because the other role in which she's an overworked waitress that I can think of her in is in the movie Office Space. And I think actually in that movie, she plays a better version of tired of the world, annoyed with the world, you know, Rachel from Friends, rather than this one where it does kind of feel like she is a cartoon. She's always kind of hopeful and she's always looking ahead at the beautiful horizon. And she just kind of has this, I I don't know, I, I don't want to call it sickly sweet. But it's kind of a really sweet performance that fits Jennifer Aniston really well. Yeah, ironically, Brad, she also plays a overworked waitress in the first many seasons of Friends as well. So I think that that's kind of maybe that's her niche. Maybe that's what she was <laughs> that's, going that's, that's for. Her niche. I think it's hard to tell. <laughs> She's just flipping through scripts in the late yeah. <laughs> 90s like, come on, waitress. I, I honestly think it's hard to tell with animated features. She definitely didn't do anything wrong that broke the immersion of being in a cartoon. But in some ways, you have to wonder when you're not tapped on the shoulder again to do some animated features. Maybe she just kept saying no. I don't know if she was offered all kinds of roles. But I would agree that there was certainly nothing extraordinary about her take on the character. Yeah, for sure. All right, before we go to our break, I want to talk about kind of the structure of the movie, the script of the movie. Bob. We we haven't talked about Vin Diesel as the Iron Giant. I'll tell you what. If you put Vin Diesel as Iron Giant up against Vin Diesel as Groot, who wins that fight? Because he probably says more words as the Iron Giant, but is he more emotionally resonant as Groot? He says 54 words as the Iron Giant. 54 words? <laughs> I love that Jordan's just in the background <laughs> shouting out that information. Yeah, he says 54 I looked 54 it up, 54 words. Terms. 54 different words as the Iron Giant. I don't think he says that many as Groot. Uh, my money's on the Iron Giant. Are, wait, are you? was that a joke? Because I'm pretty sure he says three words as Groot. He says, he says, I am Groot. He says four words as Groot. He says, I am Groot many, many times. And then, oh, and once, then he says, we are Groot. He says, Groot. we yeah. are Groot. <laughs> All right. So, so he says 50 more words as the Iron Giant. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's crazy to think about. But Vin Diesel has perfected the large... Mostly silent character. See this? This is called a rock. Rock. Good. Yes. No, no. That is a tree. Rock tree. Get it? That's right. I would like to hear if you added up, you know, all all 58 words that he has said as the Iron Giant and, and Groot over the years compared to the paychecks he got for all those movies. And just we counted out how many dollars per word this man gets as a voice actor. See now it's got to be in the millions at this point. Yeah, and the crazy thing is, I'm not sure that Vin Diesel actually knows many more than 58 words. <laughs> 
I was going to say, I don't know what the word count for the Fast and Furious movies is when he does Dominic Toretto, but I can't imagine it's many more than 54 words. It's pretty much the same thing as Groot, because he instead of saying we are Groot, he just says we are family. Yep. That's that's all he says. Yep. <laughs> as someone who has never seen the Fast and Furious movies, I just, I'll take your word for it. I believe that those are the things he says. Brad, what we're actually doing is we're going to hold out until there are 32 Fast and Furious movies, and then we'll just do a whole season of the podcast on them. All right. So before we get to our break, I do want to talk about Brad Bird as a director, you know, and and, uh, helping with the screenplay of this movie. One thing that really stuck out to me about this film is it is an hour and 27 minutes, including closing credits. It is a very short film. And I think that for parts of the movie, the efficiency of the film really, really works. This thing moves like gangbusters. And I actually was really impressed in the early scenes. You could kind of tell that they were trying to move it along and not have any fat on this thing. I remember uh, when Hogarth first gets home from kind of messing up the diner and he's watching a scary movie on TV and then the TV goes out. He says, stupid antenna. And then it immediately cuts to him opening a window in a different part of the house. You don't see him go up the stairs. You don't see him go, you know, find his flashlight. It's like, we don't need to see any of that stuff. You get the line that introduces the next scene, and then it's an immediate cut to the next scene. And I really loved how efficient and lean this movie is in the early going. But I also think that keeping the movie so short kind of undermined a lot of the emotional moments. You know, when um, Dean, Harry Connick Jr.'s character, is protecting Hogarth from the giant when it kind of snaps into that defense mechanism and and tries to kill him. Hogarth runs away and he's like, Hogarth, no, come back. And then he immediately sees Hogarth's gun on the ground, toy gun. And he has this profound realization, but it happens in the course of like three seconds where he's like, it was a defense mechanism. He was reacting to the gun. And then it cuts to Dean rescuing Hogarth on a motorcycle. And it's like, Your character just had a major shift in attitude towards the Iron Giant, and you did that whole shift in about 3.5 seconds. And I think sometimes those moments don't get quite the time they need to have like an emotional resonance. Yeah, I I really struggle with certain aspects of Brad Bird's filmmaking, and yet there's certain moments where he uses like camera angles and he pans the camera in a way that mimics, you know, live action filmography so so well. He he captures characters' emotions extremely well with his camera movement in this movie. But I would agree there's there's a few moments where you're like, "Man, Brad, like you only went on this for like an hour and 25 minutes. You probably could have given a, an extra 10 minutes." to maybe flesh out a few of the scenes a little bit more deeply. I was wondering about the runtime, and I've recently become an avid user of Disney Plus because all 30-some seasons of The Simpsons are on there. And I kept, I had a moment of realization that I kept seeing Brad Bird's name in the credits for The Simpsons. I'd totally forgotten that he started a lot of his career on uh, writing, producing, and directing some of the best seasons that the, of the really iconic TV show. And I was wondering what it would be like to try to transition from that. And really his next big project was The Iron Giant. I wonder how a tight 22-minute TV show that is a cartoon influenced his ability to make like a feature-length film. Jordan, I think that's a really good point. And when we get back from our break, I think we should talk about some of the flaws with this movie, because I, I don't think it's a flawless film. Brad clearly doesn't think that. But before we get to that point, let's hit pause. And we're going to start a new segment for the next few weeks on our show called The Spring of Swill, where we're going to be sampling lower shelf whiskeys, the kind of whiskeys that you might take one look at and say, you know, I'm not sure about that. So for the next seven or so weeks on the podcast, Brad and I are going to be exploring budget whiskeys and telling you whether or not we think they're of any value. Yes, Bob, and for the first week of our springtime of swill, we will be misting some Canadian whiskey into our nose holes. All right, well, let's get to it, Brad. We're going to try some Canadian mist.
All right, so today we are checking out Canadian Mist. Now, as we said at the top of the episode, we are leaning into springtime with our springtime of swill. I'm actually really excited to do the spring of swill because, you know, it's a funny little name that we came up with, but I don't think that a lot of these cheaper whiskeys are going to be that bad. And I think part of the reason that we're doing this is to show that you can get fairly decent whiskey for a really, really low price. And Canadian Mist certainly fits the bill. This comes in the plasticiest of all plastic bottles. We got two little just shot size samples to try, and they were 99 cents a piece. So Brad, we have invested two whole dollars into drinking this whiskey today. Man, we got an entire week's worth of recording for two dollars. Two dollars. I'm excited about that. This is only the second Canadian whiskey we've done on the podcast Canadian whiskey is is not highly regarded around the world. You know, a lot of people just don't view it as a legitimate source of whiskey, but hey, we do. We'll try anything on this podcast. So we're back to the wonderful country of Canada. We're trying this Canadian mist. This is a blended Canadian whiskey. On the bottle, it says that all of the whiskeys that are in this blend are at least 18 months old. So it's not insanely young, but this is also not nearly as aged as that Canadian Club 12 that we tried in season one. Yeah, and I remember enjoying that Canadian Club uh, a little more than I had expected to. So I'm I'm curious to get into this Canadian mist. I am too, Brad. I think the thing that I remember about drinking Canadian whiskey is that it tends to just not have a lot of complexity to it. It's pretty straightforward. Uh, a lot of times it's a lower proof. So there's just not usually as much going on. I think that's maybe why some whiskey lovers around the world just kind of discount Canadian whiskey. But especially for the price, you know, if it tastes good, I'm going to give this a high score. So let's get into it, Brad. What are you picking up on the nose of this Canadian mist? Uh, honestly, as I nose this whiskey, um, I am getting up hints of gasoline. Wow. That's actually really surprising. I I don't know if it's because we're using different glassware, Brad, but, um, when I poured this out, it is like, I love it. It's overwhelmingly sweet. And you know how I love my sweet whiskeys. I'm getting just like nothing but like Heath bar toffee. It's, I couldn't pick it up at first. I was like, is that caramel? No. Is it butterscotch? No. It's like, it's nothing but toffee. And it is like, I think most people would be turned off by this nose because it's like sickeningly sweet coming out of my glass. Yeah. I mean, it's not that it's not sweet. It's kind of that, like, I, I don't know. Like, it just reminds me of gasoline in the sense that, like, it has this kind of strange sweetness to it. And yet I think that I might die if I drink it. So we've already started off with a glowing review from Brad. I actually, <laughs> I'm not picking up any sort of weird smells on this. It's it's pretty much just toffee for me, which it's not a very complex nose. It's, it has a very sort of creamy, you know, just Heath Bar kind of scent to it. After a couple minutes, I have picked up a little bit of that sort of scotchy earthiness you get. We, you know, we, we even got it on some of the Irish, like on the red breast. I have just a hint of that. But Brad, I really, really love this nose. I can tell already that you don't. But I'm going to start us off in a very high spot and give this a nine on the nose. <laughs> what the f- Bro, I don't know what you're drinking, but this is completely different on my end. Wow, Bob, that is uh that is a impressively high score to give it. I don't even know if you gave Quinta Rubin a nine out of ten on the nose. Like, I think that you might be hinting at your value score already, um, in the way that your nose score is colored. For me, I, I do notice those earthy notes. I, I think that's a lot of what I'm picking up. I was about to say that this isn't the worst smelling whiskey I've ever smelled. But I might be lying. I'm going to give it a wow. one out of 10. Oh actually, my gosh. <laughs> actually, since we go in half point increments, I'm going to give it the lowest score I can, a 0. 0.5 out of 10. I wonder if we just have two very different samples of this whiskey, because it, it can't just be glassware. There has to be something else going on. I really, really love this, Brad. And I'm not picking up any of that sort of gasoline smell. So maybe you should just plug your nose as you take a sip, because you're clearly picking up something else. I might have to. Let's give this a sip. Oh, God. Oh, man. That's not great on the front. (laughs) What happened to your bottle of this whiskey? (laughs) Leave it out in the sun to bake and then, you know, bury it in the snow during the winter? Like, what, what happened? I might have. So the front end of the taste tastes like gasoline the back end actually isn't too bad it's somewhat pleasant 
I'm getting a little bit of caramely, almost like what you said, a little bit of toffee on the finish. But the opening, like, first taste bud that it touches, it tastes like gasoline. For me, I don't know, like, right up front, the the flavor is very sweet. It has that very creamy kind of texture that I picked up on the nose. There's a lot of vanilla on this. There's a lot of that toffee on this. I think it's really consistent with what I picked up on the nose of it. I think I'm going to give this an 8 out of 10. I really like the flavor. I'm I'm shocked that you're picking up such different notes on this. Yeah, the the front end, like I said, the moment it touches the tip of my tongue, I'm still getting that full blast of nose gasoline. And so it, it ruins the taste. I'm going to give it a one and a half on taste. Honestly, it finishes really smooth. I mean, I'm sure that I'm not going to look, but I'm sure that it's an 80 proof whiskey. It is, um, yeah. It, yeah, it finishes really smooth. The And that's where a few of those sweeter notes come out. It does kind of taste caramely, toffee-like on the back end. Um, I'm actually going to give it a seven and a half on the finish. This is, this is, we are comically opposite each other today. I have no idea. Are you sure you're drinking Canadian mist? Bob, I will say this with my first three scores, I have now reached your first score. (laughs) All right. So here's what I'm going to do before I give my, my finished score. I want film and whiskey nation to just commit with us to go to the liquor store and buy a dollar's worth size shot of this and let us know what you think. Because I have to, we have to find what the rest of the world thinks of this because we are so humorously, comedically far apart on this. Yeah, I, Bob, this is ridiculous. I, I don't know what you're getting on the nose. I, I can, I can taste it at the end. Like I said, the finish actually isn't that bad. If I didn't have to drink the stuff, if I could just get like, the back end of it, I'd be like, yeah, you know, that's a solid 10. I, I don't even know. Is a fifth of this like 10 bucks? Yeah, it's exactly $10. So wow. Uh, call me Nostradamus. I will say that I think the finish is actually the worst part of this. It's real short. It's slightly bitter. It's got kind of a prickly feeling. That's where a little bit of the alcohol comes out for me. But it is it's not drying. It's refreshing. I just don't think there's really anything to write home about with it. it. It's less impressive than the nose or the taste for me. I'm going to give it a six on the finish. So you actually gave it a higher score on finish than I did. And that takes us to overall balance. Now, this is, in my opinion, a fairly well-balanced whiskey. I think that it's not very complicated, but for the price, it's kind of like, so what? There's a lot of toffee. That toffee note carries through to the taste. It's really, really sweet. I don't get a lot of bitterness on this. I don't know how, like, I just don't know what Brad's tasting, and I'm sure he has no idea what I'm tasting because we are so vastly far apart on this. But I'm going to give it a seven and a half on the balance. Yeah, I'll go ahead and give it a three on balance. Like, it it has something going on at the very end. Um, The nose definitely gives me what the taste uh, ends up being. But yeah, yeah, it's not very well balanced. Uh, It's just kind of a three. And that brings us to overall value. Now, in the state of Ohio, a fifth of Canadian mist will cost you exactly $9.99. So this is, I believe, the least expensive whiskey we've ever had on this podcast. And I'm not going to lie. I think this is a tremendous value. I think that this would be one of the best $10 you could spend and get a whole fifth of whiskey. Is it a great whiskey? Probably not. Like if this cost even $20, I think my score would be wildly different. But I was expecting something that was going to make me just want to pour this down the drain. And I did not find that to be the case. I really, really enjoyed the flavor on this. I think if you want to use it for a mixer, you can. But there's just such a rich kind of creamy toffee goodness to this that it's worth $10. I'm Brad, I'm going to give this a nine and a half on value. Yeah. So I will say that, you know, it being the springtime of swill. I'm actually kind of okay with giving this a four and a half on value. Like, it's not a good whiskey. I did not enjoy it. The finish was above average, but outside of that, it was pretty much garbage. So, you know, it's 10 bucks, though. Like, I'm not going to put something on this Canadian mist that shouldn't be there. You know, I'm not going to expect it to be a single barrel select bourbon. You know, it's it's fine. It's, you know, whatever. I'll give it a five on value. There it is. There you go. You you can have a five, Canada. All right, so it's time to reveal our final scores. Brad, I think I've been keeping track of yours correctly, but why don't you hit us with that final score? I have given Canadian Mist a generous 17.5, which without my (laughs) finish score would be a 10. 
So right. are you are you ready for this? Dude, now you again, gave it like a 40 something. It was a 40 out of 50, Brad. My wow. final score is a 40. And I will say, again, we really do factor in value. And I gave it a nine and a half on value. But even without that, I thought that this was a fairly good whiskey. And I think maybe for me, I wasn't objectively scoring the categories. I had the 999 in mind all through it. So, like, do I think that, you know, the seven and a half on taste is the same as a seven and a half that I would give a $40 bottle of whiskey? Probably not. Like, this is not as good as that. But I have I was so dreading drinking this and I was so pleasantly surprised by it that I think I just kind of maybe upped my scores a little bit because I was like, wow, a $10 whiskey tastes this good. That's a seven and a half. It's a testament to how expectations set us up. So that's bringing us out to a 57 and a half out of 100 or a 28.75. So just slightly above the midpoint, I would be really interested to put this up against something like a benchmark from our very first episode, Brad, and see what we think of how this stacks up to another 80 proof sort of bottom shelf whiskey. I don't know. How do you feel about this final score? 28.75. Um, it's a little bit high. I would, I would prefer it to be under half. So like 24, 25. Uh, but it, you know, it, it is what it is. You're a little bit crazy and that's why I love you. Yeah. Same. And uh, it's evidenced by your opinion on this movie. So before <laughs> we get back to that movie, once again, I want to say film and whiskey nation, if you're going to the liquor store and you see that they have these little, you know, 50 milliliter sized shots of Canadian mist, please pick one up. Plop down the dollar and let us know what you think, because we really need a hashtag Team Bob or a hashtag Team Brad on this one. I have to know what the rest of the world thinks of Canadian mist. Brad, would you recommend this whiskey? Uh, no, Bob, I would not. <laughs> <laughs> and you know what? I would. I think it's worth the $10 investment. I think it's definitely worth the $1 investment just to try it. Even if you come out with a score as low as Brad's, you get a good story out of it. So, I mean, I will say I scored this, I think, higher than Basil Hayden's. And again, that's the that's the value <laughs> score coming into things. Basil Hayden's, I don't think, is any better than this whiskey, and it costs four times as much for a fifth. So there you go. Yeah, you're welcome, Film and Whiskey Nation. All right, Brad, what do you say we get back into talking about the Iron Giant? Let's get to it. So that was Canadian Mist, the best whiskey of all time, according to both me and Brad. Bob, you are a liar. (laughs) Like the government, the dirty old government in this film. That's right. And Brad, actually, I think that's a great segue because we need to start talking about what it is that you disliked about this movie, because I'm really struggling to find anything in this movie that I would point out as a serious flaw. I don't think that it's a perfect movie, but it's it's darn near flawless to me. So I'd love to hear from from your point of view as a person who's only seen it once. What was it about the Iron Giant that just didn't do it for you? Yeah, so for me, you know, I I will say that I do fall a little bit more on the conservative end of the political spectrum. And so for me, watching this movie, you do see such a strong anti-government bias of like – so the movie's set in 1957. You know, it's the – maybe not the height of the Cold War that you might have in the 60s and 70s, you know, the Cuban Missile Crisis and all that. But it, but it's the early stages of this Cold War, and the American government is extremely fearful of what's going on in Soviet Russia. You know, in, in their mind, the, the Russians think differently than we, we do, and, and they're out for global conquest. There's all this fear going around, and I just feel like the political commentary from Byrd on the American government of the 50s was just really unfair. Like when you study the Cold War, when you study World War II and you look at what was going on at that time, I don't think that they were unjustified at all 
in how afraid they were of a nuclear holocaust. Like, I think that was a very real thing. You know, we had just gone from technology where, you know, we could drop mortar shells and shoot um, rockets out of tanks and, and so on and so forth and kill maybe, you know, 20, 40, maybe 100 men at a time to having a nuclear bomb that with its initial impact could kill tens to maybe 100,000 people and its nuclear fallout could kill millions of people over the next 5, 10, 15 years. Like, I think that with such a surge in destructive technology, I don't think that the American government was wrong for being as afraid of Russia as they were. And I think that this political commentary on an, an, a, on an American super government that's just, you know, jumping at every shadow, I, I think that's pretty unfair to to pose them in such a manner, especially when the movie itself. So so I guess that's my commentary on how he treats the actual real American government of the 50s. But then even within the movie, it sends this mixed message of like, well, the government shouldn't be scared of the Iron Giant because he's nice and he's kind and he takes care of Hogarth. But we see the Iron Giant turn into this massive War of the Worlds style death robot that's just destroying a town, destroying the army. And so I I kind of look at that and I go, well, maybe the American government in this movie was right to want to destroy this robot. It's literally a death machine that might be calling more death machines to Earth to destroy it. So I I just feel like the movie is sending a weird mixed message. and, And it makes me struggle with liking this movie. Ever hear of Sputnik? Yeah, the first satellite in space. Foreign satellite, Hogarth, and all that that implies. Even now, it orbits overhead. Boop, boop. Watching us. We can't see it, but it's there. Much like that giant thing in the woods. We don't know what it is or what it can do. I don't feel safe, Hogarth. Do you? What are you talking about? What am I talking about? What am I talking about? I'm talking about your gold-armed security, Hogarth! While you're snoozing in your wooded jammies back in Washington, we're wide awake and worried. Why? Because everyone wants what we have, Hogarth. Everyone! You think this metal man is fun, but who built it? The Russians? The Chinese? Martians? Canadians? I don't care! All I know is we didn't build it, and that's reason enough to assume the worst and blow it to kingdom come! Now, you are going to tell me about this thing, you are going to lead me to it, and we are going to destroy it before it destroys us! I think what's interesting about it being set in the 50s during the Red Scare, which is a time when Joseph McCarthy was saying, you're a communist, you're a communist, you're a communist, without a lot of suspicion, ruining people's lives. There is a commentary about the human capacity for suspicion. And I think Kent Mansley really brings that out. I think he talks a lot about like, well, we didn't build it, so we know it's evil, so we got to destroy it. And... What I love about when I watched it this time around is Kent Mansley is contrasted from the Iron Giant who kind of, yes, like has the capacity for great death and destruction, but it's kind of like this pure loving thing. Uh, There's no room in his heart for change. There's no room in his heart for like tolerance or openness. Uh, And I just thought that was really interesting to see, especially I was really influenced um, when I was reading some work on it and Brad Bird said one of the premise for the film is what would it be like if a gun didn't want to be a gun anymore? If it had a soul and it didn't want to be a gun anymore. And I really saw that conflict play out really well and how the giant was working through his own stuff, which seems kind of silly to say when it's a robot who could barely speak. But I think it portrayed a lot of emotion and self-awareness and like searching. And in the end, makes like this beautiful ultimate sacrifice that even Kent Mansley wasn't willing to make. When he says, like, well, screw the government or screw America, like, I'm getting out of here. But the giant being kind of like this barely, what seems to be something that's barely alive, decides to sacrifice himself. I thought it was a really cool take on what should be in our hearts. Like, when our hearts are open to love, when our hearts are open to change, and uh, when our hearts are open to see people in a different light. Yeah, I and going off that, I'm I'm kind of surprised, Brad, that that you saw the portrayal of the government the way you did, because I I think at least for me, I kind of made a distinction between the portrayal of Kent Mansley, a selfish, arrogant, ambitious, 
cutthroat kind of guy who isn't thinking through his actions and the portrayal of the military, especially. I thought that the general, you know, he had a healthy sense of skepticism about what Mansley was doing. He was clearly thinking more logically than anybody else was. Um, he decided to stand down when he was convinced by Dean that the creature only reacted violently in self-defense. And I think, you know, th this is not an overly complicated movie. I think that it's pretty clear that the Cold War sort of setting of the movie it's providing a commentary on a lot of things. And the Iron Giant kind of represents the threat of Russia in a, in a way or any sort of enemy country, if you think about it that way. Like you said, Brad, it, it's clearly been designed to destroy. And so if you're looking at the, the differences between communism and capitalism or, or democracy, like I think that what the movie is trying to show us is that even something that's designed to destroy something else can have can make a decision, can make an appeal to something deeper, something more human. And I think the Iron Giant, being this alien creature, comes into all these people's lives, these people who are concerned about what's Russia going to do to us? Are we going to be able to survive a nuclear bomb? Things like that. And he actually teaches these people how to be more human. He learns what it means to say no, even to the thing that he's designed to do, which is to destroy. And like Jordan was saying, I think Brad Bird's purpose in making this film was to explore the idea of what if something that was designed to destroy had a soul and decided it didn't want to destroy things anymore. And I think it's actually a really beautiful message because it's it's not only teaching us as people who live in a specific country on Earth to not necessarily be as afraid of other things, but it also appeals to ourselves and to, you know, the people that we consider our enemies, that there is something deeper than that. There's something more human. There is a way of love and sacrifice where you lay down your own priorities for the betterment of others. Giant. Like I said, it's not a really complicated message, but Hogarth's repeated kind of mantra of you are what you choose to be. I think that says a lot. And it's portrayed really well by those two competing comic book characters that Hogarth introduces the giant to of Superman and Atomo. The giant looks like Atomo. It's very clear that it is in his nature to be more like Atomo than to be like Superman. But he makes the decision to go against what his nature is for the betterment of himself and for others. And so I didn't see this so much as a critique of the government as much as I saw it as a critique of our kind of tendency as human beings to want to destroy something before we understand it and to want to act, you know, in, in a violent and destructive way, even if we're kind of perpetuating the cycle of violence instead of deciding to end it. Yeah, I, I don't I don't think that you're wrong in those uh, in that analysis. I, I think that there is a lot of beauty in the way the Iron Giant kind of changes his nature um, and chooses to live into the Superman, you know, style of life of caring for others, of being self-sacrificial. I, I guess it's still just I don't know. It just didn't hit home for me in that way. And And in the first viewing of this movie, just kind of coming into it with some knowledge of what happens. Uh, it seemed to me like the the big message did feel like that you know the government is just bad, and I do agree that the military was portrayed differently with a a sort of honor to them. But I don't, yeah, I don't know. It it just didn't hit the right tone for me. It really in the final half of the movie in a way that I, I didn't think it would. All right, so I think it's time for us to give this movie our final scores. Jordan, I'd love to hear from you first. Uh, what kind of a score would you give this film? Yeah, I tried not to be emotional about it, but I did watch that final scene again with tears in my eyes, asking myself if I'd be willing to make the same kind of sacrifice that the Iron Giant would make for those he loved. And so I'd give this movie a solid like eight out of 10. It's just one of my favorite movies of all time. Just really happy to have been able to watch it again. 
I'm, I'm very curious, Jordan. You say that this is a your favorite movie of all time, and you give it an eight. One of your favorite movies of all time, and you give it an eight out of ten. Like, what would it take for a movie to get a ten out of ten for you? Um, there have been forms of media that I feel like have truly, in the long run, changed my life. And those movies, I think, in the long run, would be a ten out of ten. This movie is a special film, and I love its themes, but it's. I think it would be difficult for me to give most any much of anything a ten out of ten, to be honest. Yeah, no, I I think that's a fair observation. Uh, I for me, this movie is, like it's solid, it's decent, it's interesting. Um, it has good characters. I think the voice acting is well done. I, I think that Brad's Brad Bird's direction is is really great with the cinematography. Um, it was just kind of the overall theme and message of the movie that I struggled to I don't know kind of coalesce with to to really. Um, believe in. And so for me, I'm going to give it a six and a half out of 10. I I think it was solid overall. Um, It's just not my favorite animated film. Yeah, I've been struggling with this because like I said, this is one of my favorite movies probably of all time. I really love this movie. I'm just going to be honest with you. I've been struggling between giving it a nine and a half and a 10 because I really do think it's that good. For me, it's kind of coming down to the quickness of the movie and how quickly it gets you in and out. Because I think that this movie has all of the ingredients to be a perfect film. Like everything I want in a movie is there in this movie. It just, it's almost like if you were going to make the perfect cake, but you didn't quite let it bake long enough. Like there's just a few moments where I feel like this movie is, is rushed and it could have used even just a few seconds more to really hammer home some of its emotional points. I really want to give this movie a 10 because I think to me, it's so important to me and it means so much to me and I love it so much that I want to give it a 10. But objectively, I think that it's probably a nine and a half. And so I'm going to be the objective person here and I'm going to say, I'm going to give this movie a nine and a half, which means that Brad and I are coming out to an average of an eight out of 10 on this movie. Actually, Bob, I do know what would have made me give this movie a 10 out of 10. What's that? I discovered that it was produced in part by Pete Townsend of The Who and that he wanted to turn it into a musical. And I don't know what it would have been like for Vin Diesel to sing as the Iron Giant, (laughs) but I assume that whatever that would have been, I would have given it a 10 out of 10 for sure. Yeah, uh, a musical version of Vin Diesel would have been spectacular. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I can see anybody giving this movie an 8 out of 10. Uh, it's solid. It's, it's interesting. It's fun. Um, it just didn't resonate with me quite as deeply. And honestly, I probably would have resonated more deeply with this movie at the age of 9 when it came out, or 12, or 15, or even 18 or 19. But I don't know, maybe I'm just a curmudgeonly old 29-year-old that uh, didn't, you know, didn't quite jive with it. Who, who's to say? Well, we want to know what you think. So if you like the Iron Giant or if you're more like Brad and you're kind of cooler on it, please get on social media and let us know what you think. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Film Whiskey. Or you can give us a phone call. Our phone number is 216-800-5923. Let your voice be heard. Our phone number is 216-800-5923. Next week, we'll be back talking about the 2011 sports classic, Warrior. For the Film and Whiskey Podcast, I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And I'm Jordan McCain. And we'll see you next time.